and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. I went to Mexico in January and all I could think was, ah, I could live here. Of course, the pressing world of podcasting was urgently calling me back. But many people have chosen the life of the digital nomad. So-called because they use the opportunities afforded by tech to globetrot while working remotely. During the pandemic, more of us wanted this lifestyle than ever. But how does this affect local communities? And are nomads really living the dream? Discussing this with me is UCO anthropologist Dave Cook. Hi, Dave. Hi, Keisha. For our listeners who might not know, what actually is a digital nomad? Well, the very simple answer is somebody that travels whilst working instead of somebody that travels for work. That's business travel. The first bit is digital nomadism. You could be anywhere in the world right now, but you are sat here in the bunker with me. Why? (laughs) Well, I live in London um, and you invited me to come and speak on this podcast about digital nomads. But I choose to live in London um, and I'm not a digital nomad. So let's get that cleared up immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Saying it proudly that you're not a digital nomad. Not so much proudly, but, you know, when I started this, I was drawn to the allure of the lifestyle and I've seen it in all its glory, all the optimistic aspects um, and also the drawbacks. So could you tell us a little bit more about those kind of those kind of opportunities, but also the, the things that don't work with digital nomadism? Yeah, I mean, it's probably best to start talking about my research project and how it started. And my area is lifestyle migration. And I always wanted to do a research on that type of person that you meet when you go traveling. And they never seem to go home. I don't know if you've ever met anybody. <laughs> um, so many. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, really interesting. And uh, Originally, I was going to do a study on um, yoga teacher trainers um, who travel around the world doing teacher training courses. I was in Koh Phangan, which is uh, an island in the Gulf of Thailand, and I met this guy called Tom, and we were talking about these types of people that never go home, and he was one of them, and we were talking about things like forwarding mail um, and subletting apartments and all of that kind of stuff halfway into the conversation he said you're talking about digital nomads and this was in 2015 and I said what on earth is a digital nomad and he said well there's a conference happening in Bangkok in a few months let's go and I went to that conference and uh, I made it my mission after that to find out because it was absolutely fascinating what I discovered there. So you're pinning down this moment in 2015 where you discover the world of the digital nomad. But I was watching the film The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio the other day, which is all about this kind of 90s inertia and a dissatisfaction with the Western world. So backpackers go off on an adventure. And it struck me that there's a lot of digital nomadism in that narrative of running away somewhere to escape. So when was the birth of the digital nomad idea? Because it feels like both an old and a new phenomenon. It was interesting that you talk about the beach because I think that that was one of the cultural genesis moments. Um, And I'm I'm writing another paper at the moment and I reread the beach and it's all about um, getting rid of your ties back home and feeling free. Um, And that's the allure of digital nomadism. It's all about freedom um, and rejecting the nine to five and commuting. It's very, very optimistic in that way, but it's also rejecting um, something. 
the roots of digital nomadism was in the 90s. It wasn't just, you know, things like the beach, but also there was a book that was written by a Japanese semiconductor called Shugo Makimoto, and it was called Digital Nomad, and he predicted all of this. He predicted the smartphone. This is before the smartphone, you've got to remember. Mm. And he was, he was talking about telecommunications devices that would um, link to video screens and would be connected to a network. And so when you kind of like read it back in this language, you can see the seeds of the idea being created. And nobody knows if he was the first person to come up with that term, but he was certainly the first person to popularise the term. And in terms of it coming into the mainstream, when I was um, in Copenhagen in 2015, and I met this guy called Tom, and we first started talking about digital nomads, and I first heard the term. I, I went and Googled it, and there were just a few magazine articles in Sunday supplements talking about this working in paradise, lying on a hammock with a laptop, and all of those stereotypes that we see now. But it was just burgeoning into the mainstream. Um, then some people had been doing it for five years or, or more, but it was very much something that emerged in the 2010s, I think. I'm a millennial, so I know a few digital nomads. And the consensus among my friends is that they are terrible people. Is that just jealousy? <laughs> yeah, let's get, get into the whole <laughs> digital nomads are ruining everything narrative, which is happening at the moment. And it's very tightly linked to gentrification. Yes, I mean, I guess you could say that it, it is a millennial trend. On my research study, certainly most of the people that I've encountered uh, over the last eight years now, my goodness, it's been eight years, um, mainly in Thailand, which is where I conduct my research. They're, they're mainly white. They're mainly um, from global north countries. They're generally quite educated. They are used to earning salaries with a Western wage. And they've been going to places like Thailand and, and Bali, Indonesia, um, as a way of making the money go a little bit further. So there's two stories there. One is a form of gentrification and it's opportunistic and they're going to places with lower cost of living and that has good and bad effects for local people. But it's also, you know, we're talking about the cost of living crisis here, but that existed even before all of the stuff that hit the fan um, over the last year or two. Um, and millennials have been struggling with rent um, and living in global cities like London and San Francisco. So in many ways, it's us exporting the problem of cost of living to the global south. Certain nations are kind of opening their doors. Some nations are opening their doors to digital nomads. Why are they doing that? Yes, it's very interesting. And we can get into some quite deep conversations about the global passport and visa um, system, which in many ways is very racist. I mean, I was just coming up on the underground today, and there was a poster, and it said immigration or immigrant. And there's a very fine line between a migrant and an immigrant. And digital nomads really kind of like cross that boundary. I got an email from a Canadian broadcaster um, this morning, and they're just about to launch uh, digital nomad visas. And I was reading the article that it was based on. They just want to suck tech workers from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Um, there's been lots of layoffs recently. So, you know, that's their, their strategy. Depending on who you believe, there are between 
40 and 100 plus digital nomad visas at the moment, and they're all structured slightly differently. But what they all point to is giving a certain privilege to people from certain countries that already have a lot of privilege to be temporary migrants that bring in spending power. And depending on which side of the fence you're sitting, that can be seen as quite problematic. Well, I'm also fascinated by this idea that certain digital nomads, they're moving to countries where their where their money goes further, but that they might also be potentially landlords in the countries that they've come from. So they might own property um, and then they're getting an income from that while also working abroad. Is that something that you found in your research? Because I know that's something that very much annoys people of my generation that can't afford houses. Do you know what? I haven't personally come across too many people that are Airbnb owners or, or renting out their place um, back home because a lot of them are millennials and they're not yet on the housing um, ladder. Um, so that is, I've met a few, but it's not the overriding narrative. And actually, there is a term that digital nomads talk about quite a lot, which is called the subscription economy, which is disavowing any type of ownership. So they're trying to be minimalist. They want to experience places rather than own things and property. And I find that very fascinating. And that's one of the um, aspects of my research that I'm looking into um, and investigating. And, you know, that opens up questions about having to pay subscriptions forever. (laughs) Mm. Um, And a lot of these subscriptions are very expensive and they can only be afforded by Westerners. But that is an interesting conversation that digital nomads are having. Thank you for dispelling that myth, because that's one thing that I'm now learning that I can't pin on digital nomads. Yeah, but now you've mentioned it and it's going to go out in this podcast. I'm sure more people are going to try and do it. (laughs) I mean, Oh, no, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) So one of the things I wanted to ask you a little bit more about is the effects of digital nomads on the communities that they move into. Um, So there's this idea that you kind of mentioned around gentrification and higher rates. How do digital nomads live in their kind of chosen new nations, I guess? You asked about the roots of digital nomadism when we talked about this book, Digital Nomad. And we also talked about the book, The Beach. There's another really seminal book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which is by Tim Ferriss. And that popularized the whole notion of geo-arbitrage. And what geo-arbitrage means is going from a high-earning country to a low-earning country, working remotely and leveraging that Western income so that you can live like a king. And the tagline of that book, which was a New York Times bestseller, was live like a rich person somewhere else. So that really opens up conversations um, about gentrification. Most of my research is in uh, in Thailand, and I've done most of it um, in Chiang Mai, which is a digital nomad center, and sometimes it's called the digital nomad capital of the world. And one of the things that is really attractive to digital nomads there is a proliferation of co-working spaces. So what's really, really interesting is people travel all the way around the world, thousands of miles to escape the office. And then they go to something that's rebranded and called a co-working space, which is essentially (laughs) another form of serviced office. And that was one of the first research questions that I wanted to answer. Why is this happening? Why are they rejecting the office, going halfway around the world and then going into something called a co-working? space, which is just a millennial rebranding of the office. So the office is dead, long live the office, right? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, one of my research participants, um, I asked, you know, why travel all the way around the world? 
and go to a co-working space. And they said, I go there to outsource my self-discipline, which is a very millennial thing to say, yes. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what impact are digital nomads having on local communities? It's really important to define which local community you're talking about. So um, I've just been contacted by a Canadian broadcaster and they're about to launch a digital nomad visa. And the impacts of digital nomads going to somewhere like Canada, where the cost of living is the same, they're probably not going to be noticed. One of the locations that there is a problem is Mexico. You spoke about it a little bit earlier in terms of your own personal experience. And areas within Mexico City are being gentrified. People are being priced out of their local areas by Airbnbs and short-term rentals. And perhaps the most famous location in terms of gentrification is Lisbon. Lisbon has been suffering from over-tourism before the pandemic, and the fault was mainly directed at tourism. Digital nomads have been going there for a number of years, and we don't know the numbers, but housing protests are happening. Graffiti on the wall is saying digital nomads are a fucking disgrace, go home, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of tension happening in Lisbon. And if you think about Lisbon, it's one of those cities which has a global profile, but it only has a population of 500,000. So we have tourism, we have migration from the US, we have digital nomads, um, and we have Airbnbs. So there's this really complicated dance between all of these different facets, all these different actors, which are putting pressure on the community in Lisbon. Dave, I feel like you're really putting a spotlight on me here because you're listing all of my favourite places. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just come back from Lisbon uh, and I went there as a tourist and I went there as a tourist, uh, you know, purposefully so because one of the housing activists that I talk to a lot called Rita Silva says, people, if you come here, please stay in a tent or stay in a hotel. Mm. Um, don't stay in someone's home because homes are for locals to live in. So I want to ask you a little bit about individualism and I want to speak to you a little bit about personal branding as well, because just in that description there, it seemed that, you know, in not identifying it as a community per se, it seems like a very much a kind of a group of disparate individuals doing what they kind of want. Does that fuel some of the kind of mistrust of digital nomads, I think, looking from the outside in? I think one of the first things that it points to is the fact that being a digital nomad is very glamorous, but it's also incredibly hard to do. It's incredibly hard to pull off really, really well. And when you talk about personal branding, I mean, we talked about co-working spaces and people feeling a little bit isolated in their Airbnbs and, and going there so they can divide up the day. Every time a digital nomad leaves one location and goes to another location, they have to find another co-working space, they have to find new accommodation, they have to find out where to get groceries. That is all very uprooting and disruptive and they self-report as, you know, this really crushing their productivity uh, every time they move. And then if you add on top of this personal branding, which is essentially thinking of yourself as a business and marketing yourself, managing a client relationship, a brand... There's another anthropologist called Ilana Gershon who writes about personal branding, mainly in Silicon Valley. And she argues that just getting a job in Silicon Valley and creating that personal brand is just too much work. 
too much labour, emotional and practical labour for an individual person. And so when we talk about a personal brand, which is a very, very aspirational thing, everybody wants a personal brand these days, you know, you have to ask your question, what are the costs? And then if you add to that, being a digital nomad, burnout is one of the things that has arisen in my research. And people don't come up to me and say, hey, I've burnt out now. With some of my research participants, they just disappear on social media. I think it's because we see pictures of someone, like you say, on a beach with a laptop, and it seems incredibly aspirational, especially when you're stuck in the UK and it's raining and freezing cold. But you're right. It's all about maintaining that personal brand, that personal persona. When I went to that first Digital Nomad conference in Bangkok in 2016, What was interesting is that people were saying that they wanted to do this permanently. And what I found over my research is that people adapt their their working practices and their rhythms. And they sometimes do this part time, but start out to do it permanently. So it can be very draining if you do it permanently. But if you're um, creating a personal brand, which is being a digital nomad and you're broadcasting that and that becomes your bread and butter, um, you have to stay out on the road to create content. Those kind of messages are perpetrated by a very small percentage of people that are trying out the lifestyle. And what was also really interesting when I went to that digital nomad conference, because the reason I went there is to find out what a digital nomad was. When the organisers invited me onto stage and they announced that a social scientist was there researching the phenomenon, um, and then everybody came up to me and they said, oh, this digital nomad conference is really interesting. Can you tell me what one is? (laughs) So I I went there to try and find out and then realised it was quite uh, a misshapen and ill-defined term. And it was still early days, but, you know, digital nomads don't always know what digital nomads are. (laughs) So what's your bulletproof checkpoint list of what a digital nomad is? Yeah, because I think it's really important now post-pandemic that we differentiate between who is somebody that just works from home and somebody who is a digital nomad. There was an American company called MBO and they publish uh, a yearly digital nomad survey. And in their estimates, there are 16.9 digital nomads in from the United States at the moment. I think even more incredibly, the, they estimate there are 72 million armchair digital nomads. People are imagining becoming a digital nomad within the next two to three years. So if you kind of like think about the impacts that's going to have on places like Bali, where there's already over-tourism and quite a lot of digital nomads. That's an interesting conversation. I spoke to them about how they sampled and how they did this research, and because I was a little bit sceptical, um, and we started to have a conversation. And out of those conversations, I just wrote a paper that built on their definition of what a digital nomad is. And basically, the the definition is is it's somebody that works remotely on the move. They have control and autonomy over being able to move in the first place, which means quite a lot, a lot of them are freelancers. And we wanted to come up with a minimum definition of how often people should move in a year. And that's the really important bit. They're people that go to at least three different locations in one year that isn't their home or a friend's or a family home. Because one of the things that happened in the pandemic is a lot of people experimented with working remotely, not just at home, but in other places. I think it's important to differentiate that group of people from digital nomads. 
Thank you. I was actually going to ask you about the pandemic, but now I'm going to ask you about how many digital nomads there actually are. Because in some of my research for this, I found that some digital nomads don't pr- proclaim their digital nomadity, if that is the right way to describe it. Yeah. Um, you know, precisely because of challenges with work. There is a big issue here around tax, around where you pay tax. So I just wondered whether you could illuminate us as to how many of these people you think. Yeah, so the only people doing any counting is this company, um, MBO. So they're doing counting um, um, for the United States. And the reason why I wrote my last paper, which is called What is a Digital Nomad, is to try and come up with a international universal definition of what it is so that countries can start using that definition as a counting mechanism because nobody's doing it. So just to give you um, an example, last year... I was called in by the Treasury um, to give expert um, testimony as an expert witness um, to help them understand what a digital nomad was so that they could understand the tax implications. They were calling it cross-border working. Um, So I started to share those definitions with them, but it was just very, very clear that they didn't know anything really about this new lifestyle. So they're just right at the beginning. Dave? Thank you so much for joining me in the bunker to discuss digital nomadism. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras. In addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing that you're supporting independent media. Dave, are we off on our holidays? (laughs) (laughs) I just come back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dr. Kasia Tomaszewicz. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Kasia Tomaszewicz. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>